So what we're going to do today is love God. And what does that mean? We'll start in the New Testament and we'll wind up in the Old Testament. Three times in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Yeshua dukes it out with Pharisees or so forth. And the question always starts with a Torah scholar asking him, what's the most important commandment? What's going on there is a couple of things. You have this young rabbi who has come out of Galilee, and he is making quite a splash, if you will. And so what happens is he's getting what I call the Baptist anal exam. And I'm picking on Baptists, but other churches do the same thing. You go into a Baptist church and they find out you're not a Baptist, but you're some other flavor of Christian. They have sort of a stock set of questions they ask you. The idea is they're trying to figure out whether or not you are truly saved and truly a believer. But what these guys are doing is they're giving it from Torah. And so the first question they do is they come to him and say, all right, What's the most important commandment? It happens in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three have the same conversation. And so I'm going to read it from Luke, and I'm in Luke uh, chapter 10, and I'll pick it up in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And, oh, by the way, a variation on this is, what's the most important commandment? The answer is always the same. And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? So he turns the question back to him. And he, the lawyer, answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly, do this, and you will live. So there's two parts to that answer. Part one is love God. Part two is love your neighbor. We should be able to figure out what it means to love God and what it means to love your neighbor. Let's fast forward, if you will, to Luke 11.42, still in Luke, still in the same chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 37. While Yeshua was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things which are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. What are the Pharisees under these circumstances doing? You neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So doing the commandments is certainly part of the process, but it's clearly not the whole thing. There's some other stuff then that is involved in this that is uh, different. I think you all know that in Greek there are like three or four terms for love. Mm -hmm. Depending on 
what the object of the love is. The Torah doesn't have those distinctions. And it's interesting that in all three of these encounters in the Gospels, we always go back to Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy, there's no confusion as to what kind of love we're talking about. Whereas in the Greek, there may be, depending on what Greek word is is translated as love. And so what I'll suggest to you is what most people today think of as love is not at all what the Bible is talking about when it talks about love. Now, we're in a society that is saturated with sex that's called love. But that's not the kind of love that God is talking about here. As you grew up in Sunday Christianity and people kept talking about love, I will suggest that that's sort of the place where you were spring-loaded to go because that's the society you grow up in. So if the word love is always really romantic love, when love gets mentioned, that's sort of the place where your mindset is loaded to go. By the way, I have to make a confession. I detest contemporary Christian music. Just do not like it. Because it is soaked in eros. And, I mean, that kind of feeling is wonderful, but that's not what typically I believe God is talking about in the scriptures. So, if I'm right, let's see if we can unpack this and we can figure out what it means to love God. Let's go to John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me, but if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So the idea here is, again, going back to this idea that love of God involves obedience, it certainly does, but that doesn't seem to be sufficient. It's sort of a necessary but not sufficient condition. And what he's doing is he's talking to people who diligently search the scriptures and are trying their level best to obey them. Now, just like everybody else, they got some misconceptions, and you know we, we don't teach oral Torah here, which are some of the misconceptions that I believe they were under, but I don't believe that they're any different from anybody else. You know, you go to a Presbyterian church, Episcopal church, a Messianic congregation, a Jewish synagogue, and everybody has got misconceptions. And I believe that everybody in those churches is trying his level best to love God. And I'm not suggesting that the Pharisees here are going about this with a malicious intent. They are getting malicious results, but their intent is not malicious. And you go to any church in the United States, and you'll find that a lot of them get malicious results without having a malicious intent. And it's my opinion that a lot of that comes from a misunderstanding of what you're looking for. So let's go back to the source of loving God. Let's go to Deuteronomy 6. This is where it starts. It's the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Ah, 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as signs on your head and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. What are you supposed to love the Lord with? Three things. I will suggest that that is a reflection of God's love for you because how many people are in the Godhead? Three. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So what's the heart of God? The Father. The heart of God is the Father. What's the soul? That's Yeshua. Mind, will, and emotions. What's the might? The Holy Spirit. God's power source. So when God says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, what he's saying is, is that's how I love you, and I want you to come back at me the same way. In the New Testament, there's more, interestingly. And I'm in Matthew 22:37. It's the first place it shows up. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Notice that it doesn't have power. So now we're in Mark 12:30. Yeshua answered. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. What I will suggest to you is you are a being in three parts. You have a body, which is the clay. You have a spirit, which is the part that connects to God. And then there's something in between. And depending on how you break that out, it is the soul. It is the mind and the soul, I would say that is your nephish. And your nephish has got two parts. There's a part of your nephish that you have control over. That's the part that you plot and ponder with. And then there's the part of your nephish that you don't have control over, which the modern world calls the subconscious. And so what I'm suggesting to you here is what Yeshua is saying is both parts, your entire nephish, which is the conscious part the mind, and the unconscious part, the soul. So you have mind, nephish, and might, or strength. That's what I think is being said there. Because I don't think Yeshua is rolling anything new. The Jews understand this perfectly well. They understand it better than Christians. They understand everything that Yeshua is saying here. And most of them, with the exception of the fact that he claims to be the son of God would agree with pretty much everything Yeshua says because he's teaching Torah. It is not the case that he's the first one that allowed them to understand it. He came to them in a time when they were about to go into exile, just like Jeremiah did, just like Isaiah did. Israel has come to the point where they're about to go into exile because of their behavior. And so what he's doing is he is coming and he is dragging them back to what they already know but aren't doing anymore. Isaiah does the same thing. You know, all the magnificent love passages in Isaiah and so forth are spoken to an Israel who has societally gone so far down the tubes that God has finally said, you're going into exile, folks. And so the prophet is then sent to remind them of something they already know or should know. It isn't anything that they don't understand or didn't understand the problem is the society has become so corrupt that it's no longer operational 
Deuteronomy, which is the first place that you are commanded to love God, if you look at it as a covenant, which it is, it is very, very similar to other covenants of other cultures in that area at that time. So if, for example, you had a vassal king and a suzerain king, which is the suzerain is the high king and the vassal is a subject king, one of the things that the vassal is commanded to do is to love the suzerain. That word is you. You are to love him. And I will suggest to you that there isn't any emotional connotation in there whatsoever. And the language we have here in Deuteronomy is exactly the same as the language in a lot of these old covenants. So in that context, what does the word love mean? Your relationship to the king is in all your actions, you look around and you see, how can I do good to the king in this circumstance? And the king is not here looking over my shoulder. So your relationship to the high king is, you look at your circumstances and all the things that you have to do, and you do all of your actions in light of what's the best outcome for the high king in this situation, and I will behave that way. So love in this sense is I am your agent, if you will, in this part of the world, and I will conduct my life so that it reflects well on you. If you had been here yourself, what I'm going to do is what you would have done. Even though it may not be in my personal best interest. And to use a musical term, all of the Torah is written to be sung. It's all pointed to be sung. And each one of the writers sounds different. So each one of them is singing part of the Tanakh, if you will, but each one of them has his own voice. And so if you have an orchestra, you have a piccolo here and you have a tuba there, they're both playing the same notes, but they sound very different. So the idea of being a little copy of God doesn't mean that God has taken a cookie cutter and stamped a bunch of us out so much as God has written the music and each one of us will sing it with a different voice. Love is when you use your mind, will, and emotions, when you use your heart, your soul, and your might, and you use them in the service of God and you do things as best you understand the way God would do them were he standing there, even if in some cases it isn't to your best interest. That's what you shall love the Lord your God means in the context of Scripture. And notice that it doesn't have anything to do with emotion. It's not that you have some gooey chocolate fudge feeling in the middle of your stomach every time you think about God, although you might, that's okay. But that's not what the Scripture is talking about. You have to obey. I mean, that's sort of a baseline. Yeah, well, you got to do what I told you to do. But that isn't really what he's looking for. What he's looking for is your creativity as you approach every situation in your life and you attack that situation from the perspective of if God were here, how would he do this? He made each of you individual. You have a different voice. You have different everything. And so you're going to get a different sound out of your life as you go through it. But as long as you are 
approaching each situation as if God were here and he had my equipment, whatever my equipment is, how would he handle this to his glory? In that case, you are loving God in a biblical sense. A lot of the laws don't make sense because there's stuff going on spiritually that we can't see anymore. The way I describe it is this world is like a minefield. And if you don't have a good mine detector, you're very likely to step on a mine in complete innocence. And what God is saying in the Torah is there's some of this stuff that you can't see anymore because you got yourselves disconnected in the garden. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some mine markers. You don't need to understand why you don't walk there. Just don't. I can't explain to you why you don't walk there. I'm just telling you it's dangerous. So a lot of the laws are for your own safety. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. You don't know why, but you just do them because God tipped it. And you trust that he loves you and he wants the best for you. So if he says don't do that or do do that, all right, fine, I'll, don't, I'll do that. But the other part of that is understand that in all those circumstances, you have to look at the laws in the light of your relationship and your understanding to the best you can. I mean, we, we obviously can't completely understand God's plan, but he's given us enough of it that we can at least get the outline. And so as you go through, what you want to do is you want to behave in furtherance of that plan as you understand it using your own talents and your own strength. So when it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might, as I led this off with, those are the three parts of the Trinity. You know, the heart is the heart of God. The soul is the body, if you will, Yeshua, mind, will, and emotions. And the power source is the spirit. And what he says is, I want you to bring everything I have given to you to bear on all your life circumstances in light of what you think I would do were I there. And that's the definition of love as it is outlined here in Scripture. And there's nothing gooey about it. Let me close this segment with Deuteronomy 10.16. It says, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer sovereign. So who is the one who is doing the circumcision in Deuteronomy 10.16? You are supposed to circumcise your heart. And then it gets down to Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. Now here we go. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul that you may live. The idea here is as we're going through this life before Yeshua's return, you are responsible to circumcise your own heart, which is what this whole conversation we've been having is about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This discussion that we've been talking about here is, is a process of personal heart circumcision. You do it. At the end of the day, he realizes that you are not going to be able to do a satisfactory job. So at the end of the day, he comes back and he will do the circumcision. And the byproduct of that circumcision that he does is that you will love him and you won't have to work at it now you have to work at it because the problem is 
what you want gets in the way of what God wants. It happens to me all the time. But I want conflicts with what God wants or what I think God would want. I often don't know what God wants. But what I want very often conflicts with what I would think God would want in that circumstances. And now I've got to make a choice. Do I get what I want or do I do what he wants? And sometimes it goes one way and sometimes it goes the other way. And what God is saying here in Deuteronomy 30 is at the end of the age, he will perform the circumcision and that conflict will no longer exist. 1 John 4.20 If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And that's back in the Shema. Verse 5. Everyone who believes that Yeshua is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whomever has been born of him. So this again goes back to Yeshua's conversation with the Pharisees. You say you love God, but you don't love me who was sent by him. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And this goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You got lots of little sound bites, and they are all necessary, but individually they are not sufficient. You've got to sort of scoop a whole bunch of them up to come up with the whole picture. And quite frankly, that's a contention that I would have with the Sunday church, because you get people that grab one of these little sound bites and hold on to it, and it's a wonderful sound bite. I mean, it, it, it's true. In other words, they found a passage of Scripture that they like, which is the truth, and in trying to make that complete, they wind up stretching the plastic way farther than it'll cover. So you have to go get a whole bunch of them and, and bring them all together, and, and you get a complete picture. When somebody says, I love Yeshua or I love God, they are bringing a cultural context to that word. And so when they say, I love God, they are thinking of love in the cultural context that we live in, unless they happen to be a scholar. But most people, when you say love, that word comes packed with a bunch of stuff. And what I hope you will see is if you go back to what the Bible is actually saying, our modern concept of love is incomplete and loving God is really a much more comprehensive thing than the word love encompasses in our culture.